Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. We read this passage last week as well as we considered the first part of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45. And today we are going to conclude our consideration of both this passage and of this Lord's Day. So this passage is the passage in Matthew's Gospel where we hear Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me also in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together the second part of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45, which consists of question and answers 117 through 119. As a reminder, this catechism, which was written in 1563, gives us sort of the mountaintops of the Christian faith and of the main teachings of the scriptures. And these are the teachings, these are the topics uh, that the church has been learning throughout the centuries. And so we are doing what Christians of old have been doing. And so this morning we are going to continue our reflection upon this introduction to the Lord's Prayer. As always, I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 117 asks, How does God want us to pray so that he will listen to us? First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation, even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. Question 118. 
says, what has God commanded us to ask of him? Everything we need spiritually and physically as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. Question 19 asks, well, what is this prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us, not only in the beauty of creation, which testifies to your, glo- your glory and your power and your goodness, but uh, most supremely of all in Holy Scripture, which makes known to us the way of salvation. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that in this moment we would not merely hear or read, but that we would inwardly digest this word in our ongoing growth and edification into the, the image of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right, boys and girls, what are the three main sections of our catechism? Isaiah? Very good. Which section are we in? Good. All right, this is um, going way back, but where do we come to know of our sin and misery, boys and girls? Sin and misery. How God? Lily? Yes, very good. The law of God tells me or us. And what is what then is true faith? What are the three elements of true faith? Violet? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what is the content of this faith? Noel? The Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed uh, consists of those things that we need to uh, know, assent to, and trust in. Now, when we profess this true faith, what benefit do we receive? Annabelle? Christ's righteousness. We're justified. Uh, where does this faith come from, boys and girls? Isaiah? The Holy Spirit, and what means does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith within us? Isaiah? The preaching of God's word. The preaching of God's word, and what's the, the, the other means that God uses to confirm or nourish our faith? Noel? The sacraments. Very good. Now, what are the three elements of a good work? The three elements of a good work. Annabelle? And what, 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 what's our heart condition? Good of our neighbor. What, what needs to be in our heart? Very good. You got the two elements, Ezekiel. It has to be done out of a heart of true faith. Very good. Yes, yes. Good work. Uh, good job, Annabelle and Ezekiel. Yes, a heart of true faith done according to the law of God unto his glory. Uh, so we just conclude our consideration of the Ten Commandments. And what's the, the, the division of the Ten Commandments or two main parts of the Ten Commandments? you remember how Jesus summarizes that? Isaiah? Love for God and love for neighbor. Very good. Very good. What question does the first commandment answer? Yes, Marcus. Who we should worship. We should worship. What about the second and third commandments? Violet? How we should worship. What about the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day? Noel? When we should worship. Very good. Uh, so last week we began our, our, our introduction to prayer, and we considered the why of prayer. Why should we pray? And the two main points that the catechism gave us in question answer 116 is that we should pray uh, because it's important and because it is effective. 
And the Catechism uses very strong language to describe prayer. Prayer is the chief part of the thankfulness or gratitude that God requires of us. So all the things that we're called to do in light of the Ten Commandments, prayer gets the esteemed position of number one. It's the chief part or the most important part of the life of gratitude or thankfulness to which we're required. And we reflected last week on the reason, the reason why the catechism gives prayer such an esteemed position is in part because prayer functions as a microcosm of our entire life of gratitude to which we're called. If you think for a moment about the posture of heart that you have during times of genuine prayer, it's that posture that you are to have during every waking moment of your day. And so it's for that reason that the catechism places prayer as the chief part or the most important part of this life of gratitude. And furthermore, you can think of a prayer as sort of being your gratitude meter. How grateful are you? How thankful are you for the good news of the gospel? Look to your prayer life. Your prayer life reveals the extent of your gratitude to God for his grace displayed to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, today we're going to cons- uh, finish this Lord's Day, and we are going to look at uh, two more questions. We're going to look at the how of prayer, how should we pray, and we're also going to look at the what of prayer, meaning what should we pray. So how should we pray, and what should we pray? Now you'll notice that in question answer 117, the catechism gives us three responses to this question of how should we pray. And the very first thing that the catechism tells us is that we are to pray with a, uh, pray from the heart. We are to pray from the heart to God. So we see that in question answer 117. First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God. So we are to pray from the heart. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, this means that we are to pray from a heart of faith. Again, remember what uh, we just, uh, Annabelle and Ezekiel just said about a good work. A good work needs to come from a heart of faith. And so prayer as one manifestation of a good work also needs to come from a heart of faith. It's very important that prayer comes from a heart of faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, the author of the Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, the author is essentially summarizing the entire first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. He's saying that we have a great high priest in the person of Jesus Christ who has torn the curtain which separates us from the very presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies. And what is our response to be in light of that great reality? Well, we are to draw near in prayer with hearts of faith, with the full assurance of of faith. And so we are to pray from a heart of faith. And so when we pray, we are to remember the great truths that we confess. Remember what we confess in question answer 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God? That even though you grievously sin against all of God's commandments, 
and have never perfectly kept any one of them. Yet nevertheless, God grants to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner, but as if you have had perfectly completed and fulfilled the obedience which Christ performed on your behalf. That is the truth that we are to rest in, believe in, and trust in when we come before God in prayer. Or think about what we confess in question answer 26, about what we mean when we confess that God is God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth in the Apostles' Creed. Well, we are confessing that God promises to turn whatever adversity he permits to enter our lives for our good because he is able to do it as our almighty God and willing also as our faithful father. We are to be resting, believing, and trusting in that truth when we come before God in prayer. That God is not just all-powerful, but he's our loving heavenly father who delights to hear and answer the prayers of his children. And so we are to pray from a heart of faith. That's foundational. That's foundational as we consider the how question of prayer. Well, heartfelt prayer also means that we are to be genuine in our prayers. And this is a point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying that we are not to pray merely to check a box. We are not to pray to get outward recognition or praise or applause from others. Jesus says very much the same thing in Matthew 15, verse 8, as he again condemns the the Pharisees as he quotes Isaiah. And he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And thus we are to pray from the heart, meaning we are to pray from, from a heart of faith, and we are to pray genuinely to our God. We'll notice that question answer 117 continues. And it says, Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Again, in that introduction to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 8, uh, Jesus is commending for us the, the uh, secret prayer. Going into your, your, your room and, and shutting the door and praying to your Father who is in secret. Now in saying this, Jesus isn't forbidding all forms of public prayer. Rather, he is saying that we are to be humble in our prayer. We are not to be praying for our glory. Again, remember the definition of a good work. The tell us for every good work needs to be the glory of God and not our glory. And that's what Jesus is teaching here when it comes to the good work of prayer. We are to recognize who we are according to objective reality. We are sinful, needy, helpless creatures apart from God. And we are to pray to God alone for his glory without consideration of praise or recognition or accolades from other people. Now, when it comes to our posture in in prayer, there's no one posture that's more holy than another. However, the reason why the practice of of folding our hands and, and bowing our heads, closing our eyes developed was in part behind the idea that if our physical bodies assume a posture of reverence and humility, that may serve as a reminder to our souls to also humble ourselves in the presence of God, our creator and redeemer. And so it's, it's important for us to think about posture uh, because it's a good reminder. It's a good pinch uh, on the hand to, to, to remind us the posture that our souls are to embrace as we come before our God in prayer. 
But the catechism here is it speaks about the humility that we are to uh, display during times of prayer. It also says that we are to recognize our need. Now, in one sense, if we're praying, we are recognizing that we are to some extent needy. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be praying. Prayer itself is a recognition of one's need. Those who pray are generally those who recognize that they have a need that they themselves cannot fix. And those who habitually don't pray are oftentimes, or generally speaking, living under that false notion that they are self-sufficient. There is a correlation between Prayer and the recognition that one is a needy creature, a helpless creature apart from God. And there's also a correlation between a lack of prayer and a heart of self-sufficiency. So, to put it another way, prayer reveals a heart of dependence upon God. And a lack of prayer reveals a heart of self-sufficiency towards God. And so we would do well to consider our own prayer life, and what our own prayer life reveals about the posture of our hearts. Our prayer lives reveal a heart that recognizes one's need before God, that recognizes that one is, is helpless before God, or our prayer lives reflect a heart that basically believes that we're self-sufficient, independent, autonomous creatures before our almighty God. And this, I think, is important for us to hear in a place like Gig Harbor. Wealth and, and prosperity breed a sense of self-sufficiency that renders prayer as an unneeded practice. And we need to be on guard as those who have been blessed with a measure of, of wealth or prosperity that we don't begin to trust in that wealth and prosperity. We don't begin to think of prayer as a practice for those people out there who have needs while we are doing pretty well based on our own talents, abilities, energy, education, we all are needy creatures, dependent upon our God. Listen to what St. Augustine said many centuries ago. He said that the first thing that we need to do in order to pray rightly is to account ourselves desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of our lot may be. Augustine said that's the very first place that we need to begin when we think about prayer. And so we are to pray humbly when we approach our God in heaven. We will notice that the third reason that question answer 117 gives us in answer to this how question is that we must rest on this unshakable foundation. And what's that unshakable foundation? That even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. Now, boys and girls, it's out of this theological conviction that the catechism articulates here that we conclude our prayers ordinarily by saying, in Jesus' name. And Jesus tells us to do this very thing in John chapter 14, which is the part of the upper room discourse. It's the eve of uh, before his death, and he's instructing his di disciples on many different uh, topics that are very important topics for disciples within the New Covenant Christian Church to know, to recognize, and, and to emulate within their lives. And he says in John chapter 14, 
verses 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Think about how strong that language is. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus here is speaking about the unshakable foundation of praying in his name. Now, we can't misunderstand this. Merely reciting the words in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers is not a magical formula. Rather, it's a confession that we make in order to remind ourselves that every time we pray, we need to pray with faith in Christ as our mediator and intercessor before God the Father in heaven. The only reason why we can have any confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered is because of the work of Christ on our behalf as our mediator and intercessor. Apart from Christ, our sins plug the ears of God the Father so that our prayers are just veinless, a repetition of words. But in Christ, our prayers waft up before God the Father's a pleasing aroma in his sight. And so concluding our prayer in Jesus' name is a very helpful reminder, confession of sorts for us to remind ourselves of this unshakable foundation that is to be the ground of our prayers. I was reading a, a, a section of a book this week and the author cited a, a story from a 19th century minister and evangelist and this, this minister evangelist was at an event, speaking at an event, and someone slipped him a note. And on the note, this man said, I've been an elder for decades. I've been a faithful Christian my entire life. I've been praying for this certain thing for years. I just don't understand. Why is God not answering my prayer? And this minister made a very insightful point. He said that this person is thinking about prayer completely wrong. He's essentially praying in his own name. He's saying since he has been a faithful elder for decades, since he's been a faithful teacher in Sunday school and a faithful Christian his entire life, God owes it to him to answer his prayer. He's praying in his name. We are to pray in Jesus' name, meaning that we are not heard. God does not answer any of our prayers because of our piety or our faithfulness or our diligence. Rather, the only reason why we can have confidence that God will hear us and God will answer any of our prayers is because of the intercessory work of Christ on our behalf. And so we are to pray confidently. Confidently as we place two feet upon this unshakable foundation of Christ our Lord. Well, what should we pray? Question 117 very faithfully summarizes how we should pray. But what should we pray? I think we've all experienced that, that moment where we sit down to pray and we get a few sentences in and our mind goes blank and we feel like we're done. <laughs> what should we pray? Well, in question and answer 118, we read everything we need spiritually and physically. And we learn about these needs broadly in every page of scripture and narrowly in the Lord's Prayer. So broadly, we are to pray scripture back to God. We are to pray scripture back to God. God speaks to us, speaks to us in his word, and we are to respond to that word by praying that word back to God. 
God feeds us. God nourishes us with the means of grace, by the ministry of the word and the sacraments. And we are to respond to the means of grace by praying as a means of gratitude. Now, there is a close, harmonious relationship between Scripture and prayer that Paul speaks about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul here is saying that we all are bound to allow the word of Christ to dwell within us richly. How do you know whether or not the word, the scriptures, are dwelling within you richly? Well, Paul says you will be teaching and admonishing one another. And this is not a reference to the official teaching and preaching ministry of the church that Paul commends for Titus to do. This is the teaching your kids in family devotions. This is ordinary conversations that you have with fellow church members after the service. And Paul is saying you can't really teach others something that you yourself have not internalized. You can't edify others with things that you yourself have not been personally edified by. So one way in which we can know that the word of Christ is dwelling within us richly is whether we're teaching, admonishing, edifying others with the truth of Scripture. How else will we know whether the word of Christ is dwelling within us richly? Well, Paul says that we will be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, Calvin thought of singing as, as just one manifestation of prayer. So in one sense, you can say that Paul is saying that, that praying scripture back to God is one indication that the word is dwelling richly within you. Praying scripture back to God is one indication that the word of Christ is dwelling within you richly. Now, the most important word that we hear each week is on Sundays, the, the preached word. And thus, we are above all to ensure that this preached word is dwelling within us richly throughout the week. And one way you can tell if you are allowing that word to dwell within you is whether or not you're praying back to God the truths that you hear read and preached about on Sundays. So, does your prayer life indicate that you are allowing the preached word to dwell within you richly? Think how wonderful it would be if you have a church whose members consistently are praying the truths that they hear on Sunday for themselves, for their family, for their fellow members within the church. That'd be a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, for churches to, to, to be consistent in. You know, parents, one way in which you can teach your children to pray, uh, one way in which you can teach your children to, to allow the word to dwell within them richly is not only to discuss the sermons uh, throughout the week, but as a family, pray in light of the sermons. And so we are to uh, pray scripture back to God. Any part of scripture is open game for our prayer life. The catechism is, is placing an especial emphasis here, though, on, on that narrow element, that we learn about what we are to pray by considering the Lord's prayer. And this is going to set the agenda now for the, the upcoming weeks as we'll consider each, each phrase within the Lord's Prayer in turn. Now, the Lord's Prayer should be memorized. We recite it every week. Uh, I'm sure most all of you have it memorized. And that's a good thing. It, it can be a prayer on its own. However, 
We have to remember in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is introduced by one of Jesus' disciples asking Jesus to teach him and them how to pray. And Jesus' response is the Lord's Prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer also functions as a pedagogical guide, and it serves in this way as a template that is meant to structure all of our prayers. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a small treatise, a small booklet, uh, to help him, a uh, booklet for his barber, actually, to help teach him how to pray. And one thing that Luther says in this small booklet or treatise is he encourages Christians to develop the habit and practice of paraphrasing the Lord's Prayer. So taking each clause, each, each line the Lord's Prayer, and praying things in, in line with that petition. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And you pray things for yourself, uh, for your church, for your family, for society, in light of each one of those petitions. And that's one way in which we can allow the Lord's Prayer to teach us how to pray. And so next week we will dive into each, uh, the, first, the first opening um, address of this Lord's Prayer. But again, just to summarize what, we, what we've covered here in Lord's Day 45, Lord's Day 45 very helpfully introduced us to this topic of prayer. It encourages us, it motivates us to pray by telling us that prayer is important, that prayer is effective, that God works our prayers into his will. Uh, we are reminded how we should pray. We are to pray from the heart, meaning we are to pray from a heart of faith and we are to pray, pray genuinely. We also are to pray humbly and confidently because of Christ our Lord. And last of all, we are to pray scripture, broadly speaking, and we are to also pray in light of the Lord's Prayer. So, let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is a, a wise template given to us by your Son, teaching us the types of things that we are to pray for as we are a pilgrim people in this present evil age. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would motivate us in, in this pursuit of prayer, 